Good morning. It's good to be with you here today. But uh, we have a problem. We do. The church has a problem. Many are aware of this problem. There are many different opinions about why this problem exists, how we can solve the problem, get through the problem. But the church in the West, and specifically in our culture in America, has a problem. The church is shrinking. The church is getting smaller by not just people and the numbers associated with, but it's shrinking in terms of influence. It's shrinking, some may say, in terms of relevance. As I was prepping for this uh, talk here today, uh, my wife Gwen and I were watching just six ABC News, and this report actually came on the news. It's a little hard to read, but I thought it would be helpful just a little bit. It's from the Pew Research Organization, and it shows that over the last eight years, those who identify as Christians have dropped significantly, almost 10%. And while at the same time, proportionately, those who don't identify as anything has risen the same amount. And so, it's concerning. Because if you're here today, you're probably either interested or are part of or love the church. So what's going on? What are we missing? What's happening in our culture? Could it be possibly that we are too religious? Could the church be too religious? Is that possible? I mean, what does it even mean to be religious? Are you religious? Am I religious? Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at this series, which we've titled Unreligious. And hopefully, we're going to answer some of those questions together. We're going to look at what God's Word says and how we can better understand Jesus to see what it really means for us who are living in this post-Christian 21st century world. You see, Jesus means something different to this culture. Some may still look at Jesus and say, you know, you should follow Jesus' teachings. He said some good stuff. Some may say, you know, Jesus was the best of the best. Some may even say, as is the title of this message today, Jesus was simply irresistible. Thank you, Robert Palmer. I will not sing it. I didn't at nine, so you guys don't get extra. There's something different about Jesus. Maybe because Jesus, people know that Jesus is life. People know that Jesus is love. But how is that different than religion? And what made Jesus so compelling when he came on the scene 2,000 years ago? How did this little group, this little Jewish sect of people spread across the entire world. 
and become still the largest religion in the world today. The thing that made the first century church so contagious was the life-giving message of Jesus' gospel and the way that the gathering, this new gathering, was living into this new covenant and way of life. There was something so contagious about the message of the good news of Jesus and the way that followers of him lived. But isn't religion just the way that we pursue God? Isn't religion just our understanding of who God is and how we can follow him? And why did the religious leaders of the time seem to have so much trouble with Jesus? Well, so to answer some of those questions for us today, we're going to have to go back in time. And for those of you who love history, you're going to be like, this is the best ever. And for those of you who don't, you have to listen anyway. So, going back in time, you may know the character of Abraham. Abraham is the root, is the person who all Christians and even Jews and even Muslims look to as the founder of our faith. God made a promise to Abraham. A promise to bless the world through him. A little bit while later, God's people, the Israelite nation, the descendants of Abraham, find themselves in bondage in Egypt. And God sends Moses. Let my people go, as Charlton once said. So Moses comes and redeems the people of Israel. He sets them on a journey to a promised land. And through God and through Moses, they are given the law. The law is a description of life. The law is rules to follow that show God's people how to live, how to worship, how to work, how to have a family, how to relate to others. But not only with the law, there is a central part of this new nation's identity. And it's this place called the tabernacle. And I found a picture of it. Oh, this, this is fantastic. You know, it's my job to make sure that things like this don't happen. So do I, it's coming. It's coming. Anyway, I'm going to keep on going. Is that, is that good? I'm going to keep on going. Okay, good. So there's this place that's called the tabernacle. It was God's idea. This tabernacle, for lack of a better term, was a tent. It was a tent that was portable and movable and contained the manifest presence of God within his people. This tent was placed in the center of the camp. It was a way of God saying, listen, I'm with you. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, put me in the center of your life. I'm here. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. But when the Israelite people came to this promised land and set up the kingdom of Israel, they took a look around. 
And they said to themselves, one of these things does not belong. They looked at all the other nations around them, all the other peoples, and again, they said, one of these things does not belong. Do you know what didn't belong? Them. They were different. They weren't like the other people. They, well, for one thing, they didn't have a king. They didn't have a ruler, a person who was anointed as king over the people. In fact, God was the king. God was their king, but they didn't really like it. So they said, God, give us a king. And God said, it's a bad idea. And they said, we want one anyway. And he said, okay. So Saul was anointed king of Israel, the first king of Israel. Then they said, God, don't you want a beautiful temple to be in? And God said, no. They said, no, really, God, we're going to build you this beautiful temple. It's going to be world-renowned. It's going to be gorgeous. It's going to be great. And he said, okay, but I'm warning you, this might not be a good idea. And so King Solomon was allowed to build the temple. And so on the screen behind me now are two pictures, one of a tabernacle and one of a temple. The problem with the temple is that it was a building that seemed to want to contain God. And it was fixed in one place. It was only in Jerusalem. It was the people's idea. You know, Israel went through seemingly cyclical battles against its enemies falling to other nations, rising up again, rebuilding. There wasn't just one temple, there was many. And yet, throughout that, these opposing nations were really scratching their heads. They would come in and they would lay siege and conquer Jerusalem. And they would go into the temple and they were expecting to find something. They were expecting to find something that every temple had. In fact, temples today still have them in them as well. They were expecting to find an idol, an image. They were expecting to find God, the God of the Jewish people, the Israelites. Do you know what they they didn't find in the temple every time that it was sacked and pillaged? A statue. They didn't find God or what they thought they were looking for. They said, what does this God look like? Who is this God of the Israelites? Hold that thought. Because in walks Jesus. It's all knitting together. In walks Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene when the temple And the worship that takes place around it is at its height. And yet at the same time of prominence, the temple has become a place of corruption. The temple has become a place of politics. The temple has become not a place where people can come and find God openly, but a place where are all these rules that pushes them away from God. 
Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple. Jesus says things like, this temple's going to be destroyed. Jesus says things that are blasphemous, like, I am greater than the temple. What are these religious people to do? Throughout the Gospels, we see this continued scenario play out. Jesus comes along, and religious people have a problem with him. Doesn't that make you scratch your head just a little bit? Like, like shouldn't they be on the same team? Right? Like, they're on the God team. Jesus is for God. Religious people are for God. Why can't we all just get along? And yet, throughout the Gospels, these religious people are so against Jesus, what he stands for, his message, what he's bringing. God's, um, excuse me, John's gospel lays out two important examples that you may have actually already heard of. One is a character named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruling leader in the Jewish high council. He's a Pharisee. He loves the law. He loves God. And he is fascinated by Jesus. He just wants to know more about Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus late at night and he asks, tell me about the things of God. And surprisingly enough to Nicodemus, Jesus says, you got to be born again. Or another translation is, you got to be born from above. And this totally confounds Nicodemus. His response is, okay, wait a minute. You want me... Now, I know I was born of my mom. I get that. But then I'm supposed to go back in there? I I don't think it works that way, Jesus. You can look that up. It's literally what he said. Because Nicodemus is looking for something to do. Nicodemus is looking for something to do. He's not looking for something to be. Next, we hear a story about the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. They have a great conversation, which you may be familiar with. It's in John 4. But at the end of the conversation, it's not really going well for her. She needs to, like, get the focus off of her because there's some stuff going on in her life she doesn't really want anyone knowing about. You know what I'm saying? Let's not talk about that right now. Let's talk about you, Jesus. Hey, where should people worship, she says. She says, should people worship on Mount Gerizim or should people worship in Jerusalem? Now, the great thing about this story is that you don't even need to know where Mount Gerizim is to understand Jesus' answer. Because he says, neither. What? What do you mean, neither? It's not important where we worship? He says, no, the location is not important. But that you worship God in spirit and in truth are the true worshipers that God is looking for. Thirdly, just draw our attention to a character that may be the best example of a religious leader, temple follower, and Jewish worshiper 
in the first century. And his name was Saul. Saul was the best of the best. He was trained by the best. He lived the best. He was the personification of what it meant to follow God's law. He had it memorized word for word. He understood what it meant in the original languages. He studied under the best Pharisees there were. In fact, the first time we see Saul in the New Testament, he is standing before a man named Stephen. And Stephen is being murdered because of his belief in Jesus. And the people who were getting ready to throw stones to beat him to death laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. Saul was a very, very religious man who believed that Jesus was dangerous and that those who followed him should be rounded up and killed. But on his way to do such things, Paul, I should say Saul, meets Jesus. And he is changed forever. And in his encounter, as I just said, he becomes Paul. Later on in his ministry, he meets some religious people. And they got a problem with him. And they say, you know what, you're just not doing it right, Paul. You're just not showing people the right way to do things. And this is how he responds to them. It's found in his letter to the church in Philippi. It's going to be on the screen. And we're going to read it together. Whether you want to or not. Let's read it together. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. So here's, here's, what, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, you think you've done some good things? You ain't got nothing on me. You ready for a throwdown? Because here it comes. You think you're all religious in the way you follow God? You don't have a clue. So here it comes. Here we go. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Again, y'all got nothing on me. Nothing. You think you're good in God's eyes? You think you could stand up because of the good things you've done? Let me tell you the good things I've done. 
Let me tell you that I was born to the right family at the right time. Very important to the Jewish people. Not only that, I was born to the right tribe that was lifted up and exalted among all the others. Not only because of my birth, but look at the things I've done. I know the law like the back of my hand. I am a Pharisee. The strictest religious people. I am so zealous and committed to God that I would go to the extent of persecuting and killing and rounding up the church. You want to take a look at my track record? It's perfect. It's flawless. It's impeccable. Me and God are good. Me and God are good. This is what religion brings us. Maybe, maybe why we need to become unreligious is because this is what religion can bring us. It can bring us to a place where we see life as a scoreboard. Where we put all the good things that we've done on one side and we put all the bad things that we've done on one side and as long as there's more on this account than on that account, God is going to be good with us. How could he not? Look at, how, look at how good I am. So many good things over here. Don't forget, that's, the bad things are smaller. Less, less bad things. More good things. Or maybe this. Maybe it turns into, God, I know that I make mistakes and I'm really trying hard. I'm trying really hard to do good things. And you know that my neighbor, Mark, he does a lot of bad things. Have you seen the bad things he's done? It's bad. I'm not even going to tell you how bad they are because I would never want to, you know, speak of them. Or maybe it's like climbing a ladder. You know, religion's like a way to get to God, right? Right? So you're just climbing the ladder. You're climbing the ladder up. You're doing good things. You're going to church. You're loving your neighbor. You know, so you're climbing up the ladder. And like Mother Teresa is still way up the ladder. I know you're up there. But I'm not down there. I'm not as bad as I used to be. Interesting. Paul's going to continue and have something to say about those religious practices and observances. All right, let's go. Yep, we're valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Hmm. Interesting. You see, Jesus resets and, in fact, takes away the scoreboard. And Jesus reformats the hard drive. 
You see, Paul takes all the power that he's gained in life, all the prestige from following God, the position as a Pharisee and his obedience, his strict obedience to the law and religious activity, and he says, they're worthless. Really? Worthless? Uh, uh, Paul's not saying don't do good. That, that's missing the point here. But what he is saying is the good that you do doesn't get you God. The good that you do, the righteous acts that you do does not put you in God's debt or in God's favor. In fact, he's saying that all those things that I once thought were so important, when I look at Jesus, when I look at Jesus, they are nothing. When I see the beauty of grace on the cross and in the resurrection, when I see that my own sin has proved that I'm not worthy of that, I don't deserve that, that God's grace is greater than anything I could ever do. They're worthless. Paul says, he says, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, everything else. Paul would say, it's not even just my religious practice. He, he takes all, all of my accolades, all of my intellect, all of my awards, all of my success, all of my position, all of my titles, Everything that I find in myself that gives me meaning and worth and prestige is garbage compared to knowing Jesus, compared to receiving his grace and his goodness and his righteousness and his abundance. You know the word garbage? It comes from a Greek word. Um, which is pronounced skubalon or skubala. Skubala comes into uh, the New Testament one time. One time. Right here. And I'm, I'm not allowed to say what it really means in church. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as dung. Counting it all as crap. Counting it all. Grace plus anything cancels grace. If you're trying, if we're trying to earn God's favor, to put more tallies on our good sheet than on our bad sheet, we are missing the point. We are engaged in religious activity only and missing what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are missing what it means to be transformed, not on the outside, but on the inside by the grace of the living God. So where does it leave us? What do we do? Okay, Paul, you say this isn't the right way. You say you're better than me. 
You say that all the other stuff doesn't count. What are we going to do then? How are we supposed to live? What's really important? He tells us. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Okay, hold on. Just take a moment. God's in this room. This is his word. Read it one more time. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it this way. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules. When I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness. Dying to self is knowing Christ. Getting rid of all the baggage in our lives. All the good things that we think give us a worth. All the good things that we count as our reason why God should love us. Getting rid of them all, whether they're religious or not, and seeing that the goal is not to be a better person. The goal is not to have more religion. The goal is to have more of Jesus. The goal is to know him. Not, not in our minds, but in our lives. The goal is to know him, not on paper or intellectually, but to have a personal an intimate relationship with God. This is what Jesus offers me, and this is what Jesus offers you. Good or bad, no matter what comes, when you put your trust and your hope in Christ, you'll always get Christ. When you recognize that Jesus is everything you're ever going to need, it doesn't matter what tomorrow brings, what changes come, the one who is yesterday, today, and forever will be with you. He will be your God. You will be his chosen, and you will be in life. And so the tabernacle comes full circle. God wanted to be in relationship with his people. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us that God lives in us, with us, through us, around us. That God is not distant. God is not living in a place. God is not living in a time. That God is with you and wants to know you. Jesus is greater than religion. Jesus is greater than being stuck in a cycle of, I just need to try harder. I just need to be better. 
I'm just so glad I'm not like that person. Their sins are so much worse than mine. Jesus is so much better than creating a list of things I've done right and things I've done wrong. Jesus is so much better. Jesus' grace is so much better. Because Jesus says, you're worthy. You're lovely. Jesus says, you're mine. I call you my child, not because what you've done because of who you are. And I'm not sure I know a much more freeing story than that. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing a, a final song together this morning. And we began singing a song that described that all we want and all we need is found in you, found in you, Jesus. And we're going to end with a similar sentiment. But before we do, I just want to take just a few moments and, and tell you that if this is you today, if you are finding that this talk is really moving inside your heart, um, I want you to know that I very much like you. I see the words of Paul and I, I see myself, not that I see, not that I think I'm Paul, but um, I grew up in the church and I was a pastor's kid and I discovered from a very early age that if I did things the right way, people liked me. People that I cared about really liked me. And so when I followed the rules, I felt approval and I felt acceptance. And this worked for a while. And don't get me wrong, I, I love Jesus. I experienced God's presence and worship from a very early age, but I didn't realize what was going on really inside my heart. So I didn't realize how I had put my righteousness in the place of God's. And I had put my merit where Jesus' belonged. And it really made me, really made me recognize that when things didn't go the way that I thought they should go, if you ever had times in your life when you like, this is the result of, you know, me being good, I'm supposed to get this. And God had a different plan. And I thought that was really unfair. Because I thought all my good had done something to gain me blessing from God. Number two, it made me want to hide my sin. Because if anyone ever found out that I wasn't as good as they thought I was, I was in trouble. If they really knew me, they wouldn't accept me. And so it made me afraid. And number three, not always overtly, but inside my heart, 
When I saw someone stumble, I didn't have grace for them. I had judgment. When I was able to rise to the religious task of doing good and being good and doing what I was supposed to do, I'd look at them and say, why can't you just get it together? And then I realized that this path wasn't leading to life. This path was leading to death. I came to the end of myself. And I'm still in a process where God is taking me to the end of myself. Where he is teaching me sometimes daily that it is not about you, but it is what Jesus has done for you, Steve. It's what Jesus has done for you that matters. And so today, if um, you're hearing this talk and this is really hitting you in the heart, I just invite you to do what this song says. That you would build your life not upon your goodness, but upon Jesus's.